Why renter's insurance? Because pipes. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Insight. I'm Ali and here with me as she is every week, well for the next few weeks anyway, is Charlie. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? It's not so cold here anymore and for anyone who knows me, I don't wear winter well and we're at the end of it now and the end of the sickness that comes with it. So I feel I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, before we start this week's episode, there was a recent resolution in a case we covered for the March Patreon bonus episode. A few days ago, the body of Brian Barton was found within a mile of his apartment near a church by volunteers, and they were clearing away shrubbery. Police don't suspect foul play in this case, which leads us to believe this was a suicide. Our thoughts and prayers are with Brian's family and friends during this time. Today we are discussing the 1991 disappearance of Ben Needham and this was a listener suggestion from one of our favourite people, Rosie from They Walk Among Us podcast. Ben Needham went missing at the age of 21 months in Kos, which is in Greece, and this would become one of the longest missing persons cases in British history. Kerry Needham and Simon Ward met when they were quite young. They were two crazy teenagers in love. They were 18 and 19 when Ben was born. But their relationship wasn't the smoothest. There were breakups and makeups. When Kerry was eight months pregnant, Simon left without warning and he didn't come back. Ben Needham was born October 29, 1989 in Sheffield in England. And Simon wouldn't see Ben for many months after he was born. But Kerry had extremely supportive parents and Simon's parents also had a big role in Ben's life right from the start. Simon and Kerry eventually do get back together not long after Ben's first birthday. And in Simon's defence, he does try to right the wrongs that he did. He gets a job and he gets them a small apartment. He proposes to Kerry, which she accepts. But in Kerry's words, it just wasn't the same again. But she kept it together. She stayed with Simon for Ben and for their little family. In July of 1991, Ben was on holidays with his parents in Kos. And that's where his maternal grandparents had immigrated to. In the little village of Oraklis, and I say holidays, but it was really more than that. They had planned on moving there, but Simon had gone back to England. He wasn't as happy there as Kerry and Ben were. So he returned to England to get a good job and to get them their first real house. Kerry said that those were the conditions that needed to be met before she would uproot Ben from a place that he had quickly grown to love and before they'd go back to England. Now, before we get further into the story, a word from our sponsor this week, Blue Apron. If you spend a lot of money at restaurants or high-end grocery chains, you can now spend under $10 per person for a delicious meal. Sharing the duties, researching, writing and recording Insight and helping with Insight Junior, as well as looking after three very active children, I'm too busy to cook complicated meals. Not only that, but I'm not the most competent of cooks. I'm best to sticking to podcasting, to be honest. In the past, I haven't really tried to learn new recipes or try new things because I was worried about it tasting horrible and then I'd waste food. However, Blue Apron makes it extremely easy, stress-free and makes cooking actually fun. 
They offer easy-to-follow instructions with photos of every step of the process and they have labelled packages for every part of the meal. After cooking a Blue Apron meal, you'll feel like one of those chefs on TV. Some of Blue Apron's featured upcoming meals are whole grain pasta and summer vegetables with heirloom tomato caprice salad and basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable penzanella. You can check out this week's delicious menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com site. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now, it's within Greek tradition that children stay up late with their families till 10, 11, even midnight, and then they catch up on their sleep in the afternoon. Ben went to bed early, though, on July 23rd, and on the 24th, he slept in a bit later than usual. His father had only just left a few days before, so this excitement, this transition, it may have been catching up to him. If you read the book that Carrie co-wrote called Ben, this part's kind of hard. It's when she's talking about the last time she saw Ben. He was sitting at the kitchen table, he was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and he was eating toast and eggs. Carrie said her mother had tied a tea towel around his neck to stop him from making a mess, like toddlers tend to do, all over his clothes, but that his face was just covered with food. And this is an image I can really picture, having had many kids that age. And knowing what's coming up next, it's just heartbreaking. But on this day, Ben was staying there with his grandparents for the whole day, while Carrie was at work at a local hotel. Ben had been coming up and in and out of the house most of the day. They were living on the same property as a big farmhouse that they were renovating. There was plenty of space for Ben to just run around and play, which being nearly two, that's exactly what he did. Then at around 2.30 in the afternoon, Ben was playing outside and his grandparents had noticed that it'd been a couple of minutes since they last heard from him. So they go outside to see if they can find him. They simply assumed that he had gotten distracted and wandered off as children of that age can do. When they couldn't find Ben close to the house, their teenage son, Stephen, he had recently left on his motorbike. So it was then assumed that he went with Stephen. Maybe he had taken Ben to visit Carrie or took him to the local hotel for a swim. He returned a few hours later and he didn't have Ben and hadn't seen him. They again searched the farm and no, there was no sign of Ben. There was no trace of where he could have gone. And being not quite two, I mean, you've had kids too, Charlie. They don't tend to venture far at this age. They stay close to where it feels safe. So the concern wasn't that he left the farm, but it was 110 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius weather that day. And Ben could have been dehydrated and there was a real risk of death. Ben was reported missing about four hours after he was first discovered missing. The police arrived and they immediately believed the family was responsible and they questioned them extensively. Unfortunately, this delays putting a watch alert on the airports and the docks. There was a suggestion made that the docks were to be checked for cars leaving the island by ferry and arrangements were made for Ben's grandfather to meet the police there. However, no police officer ever shows up. Ben's grandfather makes an effort to check the cars himself as they are boarding the ship, but the light was against him. It was two or three o'clock in the morning. 
The glare of the flashlight against the windows didn't help, as with the angry parents not happy that a strange man was shining a light in their kids' faces and staring at them. But all of this goes with the family's belief that Ben was kidnapped, and there was a high likelihood that he was removed from the island very quickly. Which makes sense because the island of Kos is quite small, and he most likely would have been located very quickly. And the fact that there was a delay in the police informing the docks and the airports to be looking for a small, young, blonde boy, that might have actually damaged their chances of finding him if that's what's happened. So before we get further into the investigation, uh, add from our other sponsor this week, Link AKC. Guys, you know how much I love my dog, Lacey, and I'm always on the lookout for fun, new things we can try. Well, I discovered this amazing new collar. It's called the Link AKC. And believe me, it is so much more than just a collar. It is a GPS locator, a fitness tracker, and more, all controlled through a smartphone app. I personally love the GPS locator. I have kids coming and going, and Lacey, she's a beagle mix. Her nose gets to the ground, and she's down the street in no time. We can see where she is at all times. We know if she got out that open door. We know if someone left the gate open in the backyard, and she's out of the yard. And honestly, I know if my kid's took her for the walk they were supposed to because I can see it right on my app. But my favorite part is the activity and wellness tracker. Sometimes it's hard to know how much exercise she needs. Link AKC tells me how much Lacey needs based on her age and activity level. And Link AKC is also super comfortable and it looks great on Lacey. You can go over to our social media accounts and you'll see the pictures I posted. Take advantage of Link AKC summer sale for big savings on a collar to help keep your dog safe, happy, and healthy. Plus, as a special thank you for supporting Insight. Use code SIGHT, S-I-G-H-T, at checkout at linkakc.com to save even more and get free shipping. That's SIGHT at L-I-N-K-A-K-C dot com. Linkakc.com, code SIGHT. It would take police two days before any of this was done, this checking the docks in the airport. So when they finally did, a woman who worked at the airport did report seeing a boy fitting Ben's description at the airport the day he went missing. He was seen with an older boy, about eight years old, and they spoke English to each other. Now, this lady was sure it was Ben, and she said that the way the two boys were talking and interacting with each other, she didn't believe they were related. This boy, being Ben or not Ben, was never located. The day after Ben went missing, builders working on another property in the area gave statements to police. They said they had witnessed a white car that they didn't recognize parked in the lane close to the house at around 2.30 the day before. They thought it was a Suzuki Alto or something similar. They said that the car had three people inside, a woman in the back seat and two men in the front. Again, never followed up on. A television crew would actually question the police about it many years later, and they had to admit they had never followed up on this lead or looking for the car. And these wouldn't be the only two sightings. In the year after Ben's disappearance, there were numerous sightings, all over costs of children matching Ben's description, and they were reported to the media. But the local police, they didn't follow up on it, or it would take them months to do so. But unfortunately, this is just the beginning of where the nightmare starts for this family. They quickly focused on Stephen as being responsible for Ben's disappearance. They repeatedly tell him that he killed Ben. Stephen's motorbike had a dent from an accident from a long time before. The police would accuse him of having an accident and Ben being killed. 
And then they would claim that he buried Ben's body. And this questioning and accusations, they go on for days. Their attention then turns towards Simon. There was initial confusion because in Greek tradition, children take on their father's name as their middle name. And Ben's middle name is Kerry's brother's name. So his name is Ben Stephen Needham. So the police had a problem understanding why he had a different surname as Simon, but also that he had his uncle's name and not his father's. Certain assumptions were made, which again was the last thing this family needed. But once they were cleared up, the police would allege that Simon took him. This was made worse by a friend of Carey's father misreporting seeing Simon after he had left to go back to England. But when Simon arrived back in Kos to help with the investigation, he was able to produce all the proof the police needed to back off that line of investigation. And this family is already going through so much. We have the police suspecting them of killing a two-year-old, but here they are in a foreign country and they don't speak the language. Statements were taken from them, but they're written in Greek with no official translator present. The only person there to translate was a local shopkeeper that were friends with the Needhams. And the police don't request or arrange this. This woman had heard what was going on and she turned up at the police station and stayed with the family at her own insistence. And the British Embassy wouldn't help either. According to what I've read, apparently it was out of their hands because the family weren't arrested for any crime and the Embassy's line was that the local police had better knowledge of what was going on and it'd be best to leave it to them. But the family stays on the island and continue their own search until September of 1991 when they all have to return to England due to a family illness. And I can't even imagine how hard it was for them to leave the island, knowing that there was a chance, no matter how small, that Ben was still there. This case is compared a bit to the Madeline McCann case, which, if you want to know more about that, several other podcasts have done amazing jobs with covering it, like Generation Y and True Crime Garage. If there are ever updates or new information that comes out in the future, we We'd probably cover it too at some stage, but if you want to know more about the Madeline McCann case, Generation Y, True Crime Garage both did excellent jobs with that. In some ways, Ben's mom leveraged the Madeline McCann case and used that to bring more resources to her search for Ben. I'm sure our listeners in the U.S. and Australia know about what we tend to call missing white woman syndrome, which describes how the media flocks to cases that involve pretty, young, often blonde, affluent women going missing, and this extends to children. The news coverage is extensive, which creates public awareness, which in turn increases pressure on law enforcement to work the case harder. We talked about this in our episode about Little Rama, who went missing from her home and saw a fraction of the media coverage similar cases had received. But let's take a child like Rama, who doesn't fit all this criteria. Perhaps they're a child of color or come from a family with a questionable background, or in Ben's case, a family of lower socioeconomic status. The access to the media and the media interest just isn't there. I know we've said it before, we'll say it again. Independent podcasts like The Vanished and Thin Air thankfully ignore all of that, and they cover cases regardless. Thin Air's most recent episode on Unique Harris goes into this in detail, And I highly recommend you check it out. You can go ahead and just consider it your homework from us. A parallel between the Unique Harris episode on Thin Air and 
Ben Needham is the mothers involved. Ben's mother and grandparents, just like Unique's mother, did everything they could to make it clear that their missing loved one mattered just as much as anyone else. And specifically with Ben's case, his mom has been able to use the Madeline McCann case as an example of saying, hey, my child is important and he's missing. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know where he is. She would even send letters to the prime minister pointing out the resources given to the McCann case. Why is Ben any different? I mean, he shouldn't be. Although it's worth to note that everything they were facing in this tragedy, which, to be honest, I have a two-year-old, it's every parent's worst nightmare. But one thing I get out of doing these stories, it's not a secret that cases involving children, Charlie and I struggle. In some cases, not this one, but others we have coming up where there is graphic details that it kills a bit of you inside. I know there are cases like with William Tyrrell and this one that I don't know if I'll ever get them out of my head. But in doing these cases, you get to see the incredible strength of parents and families and their ability to continue to rally back to collect as much hope as they can to move forward. And Ben's mother in particular, she has done an amazing job over the last 25 years to kind of recollect herself. You know, they'll chase down a certain lead and it won't pan out. But she gets straight back to it and isn't discouraged. She just doesn't give up. And she just starts pressing back in the new direction. And because of that, because of her strength and persistence, this case has taken some turns and made some ground thanks to these extra resources. And that's in particular over the last few years, there has been a lot of attention around this case. And also a huge credit also needs to go to the official website, which is helpfindben.co.uk. It's an excellent website and there is a Twitter account linked to it that has thousands of followers. But the website itself is an excellent resource. And now us here at Insight are jumping on that bandwagon and hopefully any exposure we're giving to Ben, it helps in some way. In particular, this website has videos of all the media coverage from the day he went missing right up until now. It's just one of the better websites out there, and it's a testament of the work the family puts into it. But it isn't just the website. As I said, they're heavily active on Twitter. There is a tweet for Ben Day to help raise awareness for his search. And it also flows across to the Facebook page, where there is a wealth of information on the case that you won't read anywhere else. But these campaigns are retweeted by major celebrities like Tom Cruise and Jennifer Saunders, and it's featured on the nightly news programs. It really allows Ben's name and face to stay out there in people's thoughts. They have a balloon for Ben Day, and there are fundraising dinners. This family, in particular Carrie and her parents, they just have never given up on looking for Ben, and their work is incredible. Their strength is incredible. In 1996, Ben's grandparents met with a prisoner named Adonis Bedzios, who was serving time in Larissa Prison in Greece. In this meeting, he named the people he said had Ben. He knew this because he had escaped from prison in 1991 and went to live with a Roma family because his son was there. When he got there, he saw this other kid and asked around who he was. The head of the family told him they had gotten the boy from Kos. Now, there was a reward in place at this point, but Bedzio said he didn't want the money. He offered to call these people and just help get Ben back. He said they didn't want to get in trouble, but and they were willing to give Ben back, so they agreed to work without the police. Ben's grandparents, immediately after the meeting, said they believed him, largely because he had a very full story with names and locations. 
and he really didn't have anything to gain or lose by sharing this story. Or they didn't think he had a motive behind it, and we'll get to my thoughts on that in a little bit. Benzios wouldn't be the only person to support this claim. Another witness came forward and said they had seen Ben playing with some Roma children, and he was also seen playing specifically with Benzios' son. A taxi driver also came forward and said he had seen Ben in his cab with a member of the same family that had been named. He was asked to give a statement to police, and he agreed on the provision that he made this statement to the police in Athens and not Varia. But of course, where was he taken? To the Varia police station. So then he changed his mind about cooperating and giving a statement. However, despite his unwillingness to cooperate with the police, he did identify Ben in a photo that Ben's grandmother showed him and confirmed that that was definitely the child he had seen. Not long after this, though, a video was leaked to the Greek media showing a little boy at the Roma camp who looked like Ben. This boy actually ended up being Benzio's son. And when I say leaked, there is a rumor that the video was leaked by the Varia police who were trying to discredit Bedzios and the other eyewitness stories. And then in September of 2007, the British embassy in Athens were given telephone instructions from Bedzios, who was still in prison at this point, and he gave them the exact location of where he believed Ben was. They were told to go to a specific street in Larissa where they would find a Mercedes car with German number plates. But they would get to this location and then be told to go somewhere else. The car described was eventually found, though, but no one was in it, and the owners could not be located. Benzios gave the police a sworn statement naming the man who was passing him down the information and his telephone number. But to our knowledge, this man was never questioned by the local police. It got to the point in January of 2008 that Benzios offered himself to lead undercover armed police officers to Ben, but the Crown Prosecutor here would not agree to it. Ben's grandmother again visited him in jail, where he showed her postal order receipts in the names of the people he had previously alleged had taken Ben. And he claimed these people were now paying him hush money. Now, one of these people were interviewed back in 1996, but he denied knowing Bedzios. But if that is the case, then why is he paying him money? And according to what I could find in my research, I don't think this has ever been investigated further. And when Ben's family went to the police about it, they just replied with that Bedzios was not a trustworthy character. Well, I had said earlier that I was going to talk about Bedzios' possible motive to lie, even though it looked like he didn't have one. When Ben's grandparents went to the settlement themselves to investigate, they found out that while Bedzio told them he wasn't a Roma, it turns out he was, except he was from a different clan, and the clan he claimed had Ben was full of people he had a feud with. So some speculation here, is it possible Bedzios decided to cause trouble for this other group by accusing them of taking Ben, and then did, frankly, racism and the possibility of the reward combine to cause others to jump in to back up the story? Like I said, it's speculation, but there is reason here to not trust Bedzios's version of events. Imagine you're a 26, 27, 28-year-old man, and you might not even know or be aware that you're a missing person. That is what really strikes me as extremely difficult to solve. There's one person that did pop up. They didn't have any pictures of themselves before the age of two, but they're eventually ruled out because of DNA. 
But the thing is, there could be someone out there and they could not know that their parents are not really their parents. You might not realise you were taken by another family. And that is one of the challenges that are always faced when you have a long-term missing child. And this case is no different. We saw that as well in the Arnold Christian Waters case. There were some searches carried out around the farm, but no remains have ever been found. The family is extremely hopeful that Ben is still alive and he may not be aware of what's happened to him. And I do think there's a good chance that this could be the case. For a young child, especially this young, to go missing and for them to find nothing, I believe that is a positive sign that he might have been given to a family to raise on their own. Something along those lines and something we discussed in the Paul Fronziak episode. And that is just one theory that keeps coming up in this case over and over. A popular theory in this case, in the research we've done around it, is the potential for the Roma to be involved in Ben's disappearance, particularly given the previous statements in favor of this. There are between 200 and 300,000 Roma living in Greece, and they tend to live together in large settlements. There are layers and layers of social issues with the Roma in a number of countries, and Greece is no exception. They tend to stick with their original customs and traditions, and a lot of times the police don't really bother to get involved in their communities, unless they think their community issues are spilling into the surrounding communities. The idea of Roma groups kidnapping children is a long-held racist stereotype, and it goes back literally hundreds of years. There was a recent uproar when a blonde child was found during a raid on a Roma camp in Greece in 2013. DNA testing showed she did not belong to the couple claiming her. They said they were given the child in an informal adoption. Authorities ran her DNA through Interpol and had no hits on missing kids. Eventually, her birth family was found, and they were Romas who lived in Bulgaria and who had freely given her to this couple to raise because they couldn't feed her, they couldn't provide for her. And in Ireland, two blonde children were found living with the Roma. They were seized from their families because authorities suspected they were kidnapped. DNA tests proved that these were the biological families of these children and they were returned, but not after the trauma of being separated from their parents. It is apparently news to a lot of people that genetics are funny. Two darker-skinned people can, in fact, have children who are fair. The Roma have been living around the world for many years that there has been intermarriage, which would cause these recessive genes to show up. In the Lost Boy documentary, which is a great documentary, it covers the grandparents' search for Ben, You can see them go to a Roma settlement asking about Ben, and I probably counted four or five blonde or at least light-haired children and adults in the group. What has been shown is that the Roma who have been caught engaging in human trafficking or black market adoptions, because I'm not saying those don't happen and they don't just happen within Roma communities, they do happen, but... What's been shown is that they actually prey on those within their own communities, families who are in debt or destitute. Selling blonde-haired babies and toddlers in illegal adoptions does get a higher price than babies and toddlers with their darker, more traditional Roma features. And that's also discussed in the Madeleine McCann case because she was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed child 
they fit into families more easy in European countries than a dark-skinned child would. But like in most cases of human trafficking and illegal adoption schemes, the ones targeted are the ones least likely to go to the police, the ones that are not likely to trigger a missing persons report and have international press coverage. I get that this idea that Ben was kidnapped and either raised by the Roman in an isolated environment and away from surrounding communities undetected or that he's somewhere in Europe with a loving, wealthy family. I get that that gives us hope that he's alive. Unfortunately, the evidence for this theory is lacking and it's based more on long-held prejudices than on actual facts. The other theory that's mentioned a lot is that Ben was killed by accident and in a panic buried by the person responsible. This is what the police now think is the most likely outcome to this case based on evidence that's come out in recent years. There was a lot of construction going on where he was staying on the property he was on and in the adjoining properties, and there was a lot of machinery moving around. He was 21 months. He was walking around, but he was small. Up high on that machinery, perhaps the driver didn't see him. So is it possible that Ben was accidentally hit by one of these machines and buried close to the property? This theory is mostly supported by information received by police that a digger driver may have been responsible when he, when he was clearing the land with an excavator near where Ben was playing on the day he vanished. Two forensic excavations were done due to this information. The first in October 2012, where they used geophysical survey equipment, forensic archaeologists, and human remains detection dogs. This search was done in an area that it was known the digger driver, who is now deceased, was working. Only in July of 2017 did police announce that one item was found in that search, a children's sandal. That sandal had blood on it, and it will be tested for Ben's DNA. The sandal was identified by the family as most likely belonging to Ben. The second search in September 2016 moved more than eight hundred tons of soil. Some items of interest were sent back to the UK for forensic analysis, and they did find a matchbox car that may have belonged to Ben. Anyone who has kids knows they often have a lot of these little cars around. You know vaguely which ones they have, but you can't be sure. I think it's a situation like that. He had one that was similar to this matchbox car, so it may be Ben's, and it also had blood on it, just like the sandal. It was announced that DNA testing would also be done on this car. And of course, we'll keep you updated on that. Though Ben's remains were not found in either of these searches or any pieces of his clothing, it was still determined to be enough to conclude that this is likely the answer. This is what happened to Ben. Ben's mother does believe that if this is the answer, there was possibly a cover-up at some point on someone's part ahead of these searches where Ben's remains were moved off-site. For me, as far as theories go, I think this is a viable one, but I'll be watching my Google Alerts very closely for the DNA results to be announced. The digger driver, who has been accused, like I said, is deceased, and he is not here to defend himself. And any results that do come up as far as the DNA testing goes of the sandal, we will definitely give updates. 
Now, there has been also a few other recent developments in this case. In January of 2016, there was a British man, Ben Gleave, who was living in Canada, and he was asked to undergo a DNA test. He was interviewed at the time, and when he didn't hear back from detectives, he thought he was cleared. But in actual fact, the DNA sample was lost for, wait for it, for nine whole years, and no one was even worried. They only started looking for it in January of 2016, but this whole thing gets stranger. Because for some reason, that wasn't made clear in any article I could find, is that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they took this swab and sent it to a private investigator for some reason, instead of the proper authorities. And that's a big question here. How did this happen? We have no idea. And the private investigator lost the sample. So on a tragic series of missteps here... Because the interesting thing is the picture of Ben Gleave at age 11 and the photo fit composite that was done of Ben Needham from around the same age, they're almost identical. And we'll put them up in our Facebook group to see what everyone else thinks, but even down to the haircut, it is quite interesting. But the reason they were looking at Ben Gleave was his mother had a friend and they had a falling out. And apparently this friend told police that she thought that Ben Gleave's mother was involved in the abduction of Ben Needham all of which had been denied, of course. But long story short, he was retested and he was not a match. But it does highlight that because of the work Kerry Needham puts into the case to keep it in the spotlight, when Ben went missing in 1991, there wasn't DNA testing like there is today. And to be able to find Ben, they needed to create a DNA profile. And Kerry was able to work with the authorities to have them approve the release of his blood sample that was taken when he was born. And that is a bit of a turn because Ben would now be over 18 and typically to get that type of sample released, you'd need the adult's consent. And of course, in this case, the adult isn't around to give that approval. So this is kind of a good move and sets an important precedent when it comes to missing persons cases. There could be a move in the future for others to have the same access and quote the Ben Needham case to get that to happen. So there's one step where this case hopefully has changed things for the better in the UK and possibly worldwide. Because honestly, this search has practically gone worldwide. There's been reported information coming in from many parts of the globe about Ben. And I think if Ben was kidnapped and sold or whatever happened there, it really does need to be worldwide because he could be anywhere in Europe, really. Some updates on the family before we finish up. After Ben's disappearance, Carrie and Simon, they stayed together for a while. Three years after Ben went missing, they had another child, and it was a little girl named Leanna. But they split very shortly after that. Carrie struggled, understandably, after Ben disappeared, really struggled. She spiraled into a deep depression. She attempted suicide on a couple of occasions. Leanna went at one point to live with her grandparents for a bit, and that gave Carrie the time and space she needed to get the help that she needed. Now, what we see now is this really strong, driven woman. That's what we have today. You can see it in articles and interviews she's done. But early on, she couldn't go to many public appearances So a lot of the older interviews and a lot of the searches and the going into the Roma camps, those are all with the grandparents. They were kind of taking the lead while Carrie got better. Leanna and Carrie don't have contact with Simon anymore. Leanna, as a child, made a lot of public appearances because she said to resemble Ben quite a bit. 
and seeing her face as she aged could possibly have jogged someone's memory or made them go, hey, that that child looks familiar. From what I understand, this didn't bring in any new information, but I think it was a, a really good idea for the family to do that. And Leanna's talked about what that was like as an adult looking back as being a child, and it really wasn't, I think, as damaging as some might think it would have been. It's quite, it's quite bittersweet that Ben's sister, who has never met him, she is very active in the search. She does a lot of speaking on behalf of the family. I think it was really helpful in an interview that I had read with her that the family never made her not talk about Ben. Pictures of Ben were around the house. She always knew who he was. She always was aware of what was going on, why they were doing these things, why they were taking these trips, why there was, you know, a news crew in their house. She, They never, they didn't hide any of it from her. And I think that is incredibly important. And that's a quite a testament to the family's strength that they never gave up that they would find Ben. They still don't give up. There's a chance they'll find Ben one day. Simon had his own demons and troubles. He was sent to prison for robbery just three weeks after Leanna was born, and the sentence was like a five-year sentence. He is involved in the campaign for Ben, and the police do keep him updated on any new developments. Some details on Ben. Ben Needham was... 21 months old when he went missing. Today, he would be 27 years old. At the time of his disappearance, Ben had blonde, almost light brown hair, which probably has darkened to a light medium brown by this stage. He has a coffee color birthmark above his right knee and a red strawberry birthmark on the nape of his neck. Both of these may have faded in the last 26 years. In addition to the usual age progressions that we post, we'll also post pictures of his mother and sister since, like I said, at the time he went missing, he really favored both of them in appearance. I don't know. I'd like to believe that Ben is still alive out there, not realizing that he is who he is. And I like to believe that based on the airport sighting and Ben Zios's statement, but the sandal... I mean, we have to wait for the DNA to come back from that, but that is quite telling. The sandal, that's holding me up. So I feel like I can't form a theory because there's information out there that we are about to get that we don't have quite yet. So like Ali said, we'll absolutely update you guys as soon as that information comes out. Okay, so some thank yous. Firstly, to our patrons on Patreon, and we really appreciate all the support that you do give us. Thank you to Kelly, Brianna, Megan D, Vanessa D, and Rebecca M. And then to our wonderful five-star reviews, thank you to Teamic, Vicky Russell, Silver Lying Neutarian, Peepsaloza, and Broke Me Bodily. We are on Facebook. We have the page where we post all the episodes and a discussion group, which is a private group you request and we will let you join. We discuss the episodes, documentaries, other podcasts that we listen to and any other case that anyone is interested in. We are on Twitter where you can chat to Charlie and that's at InsightfulPod. I post photos on Instagram and that's at InsightPod. And we both respond to the emails, insightfulpod at gmail.com. It may take us a couple of days to respond to the emails, but we do try to respond to everyone. 
We have a PayPal for a one-off donation and a Patreon, as we said, for an ongoing monthly donation. On Patreon, we have some great rewards like a monthly bonus episode, stickers, magnets, T-shirts, and a lovely thank you card from Charlie. All links are on our website, insightpod.com, and you can also listen to our episodes there, read our show notes, and access some additional research. We will put links to the documentary on there, as well as the age progression photos. And finally, it would mean the world to us if you would rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if your favourite podcast app allows. It gives us a bump up the charts and brings more people to our podcasts.